Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Caroline Glass. Caroline is a private domestic abuse consultant who has worked for the charity Refuge for the past 12 years. Caroline has supported thousands of clients from her work on the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and as an independent gender violence advocate. She also supports, guides and advises survivors of abuse who are going through a divorce or other family court proceedings where domestic abuse is present. Caroline provides them with thorough safety planning and knowledge regarding domestic abuse dynamics to try and keep them as safe as possible. So I am super excited to welcome Caroline Glass to the show. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I am fascinated by this topic, as my listeners know, and I know you've been working in this industry for a very long time. So please do share with my listeners a little bit about your background and how you've come to do the work you do. Okay, so I've been working in domestic abuse and supporting um, survivors of domestic abuse for over 12 years. I started, I had two children and When my youngest was about a year old, I decided I needed to do something to keep the brain ticking over. So I decided to do a degree in criminology. And while studying uh, the degree, I became really interested in domestic abuse and the perpetration of domestic abuse and the psychology behind it. Um, And so from there, I decided to volunteer for Refuge, which is a national organization in the UK. Um, They have, they run the uh, National Domestic Abuse Helpline, which is a 24 hour helpline here. And they also have lots of services nationally across the country, uh, across the UK. So I worked on the helpline as a volunteer while finishing my degree and um, really, felt from the beginning that I'd found my mothership. I really felt I'd come home and this is where I needed to be. I was really passionate about getting good outcomes for victims because the the wonderful thing about supporting victims, survivors of domestic abuse is that there is a route out. There There is a journey out. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. So it's really cathartic to fulfill that role and explain the different options open to victims of domestic abuse and really help them to formulate a plan, provide them with options. So as a caseworker working on the helpline, I found that um, really invigorating. So I was on the helpline for about seven or eight years, I think. Um, And I went from being a volunteer to being a sessional worker, which meant I was paid and um, did more hours each week. And so um, my experience really grew. So because it's a national organization, I was speaking to people from all over the UK, um, all age groups, ethnic backgrounds, cultures, genders, 
So I had a wealth of experience while working on the helpline with a really great group of women. Um, it's all women that support victims on the National Domestic Abuse Helpline. Um, and I learned a huge amount. I also helped a little bit with the training of volunteers that would um, join the helpline and support them to um, really understand how to speak empathetically, how to listen, and then also how to signpost and support those victims going forward and in their journey. From there, I went to work at one of refugee satellite services. So they've got services all over the country, not just refugees, but also services where you can actually be supported by a caseworker. So I went to work at a service in Brixton, which is in South London, and it's in the borough of Lambeth, which is a hugely multicultural borough. And I worked there as something called an IDFA, which is an independent domestic violence advocate. Um, now, when you get referred to a domestic abuse support service in the UK, you carry out a risk assessment with that uh, caseworker, with that service. And from that risk assessment, you are identified as requiring a certain level of caseworker. So if you're medium risk, you'd get an outreach worker. If you're high risk of serious harm or homicide, you're allocated to an IDVA. So I was supporting up to 30 to 40 clients at any one time who were all identified as at high risk of homicide or serious harm. Um, and I would I did that for a, about a year and a half and worked very closely with all the statutory and voluntary services within Lambeth. And that's what a, an IDFA does. And that's why it's actually the most incredible support that a victim can get because as a caseworker, I was working with the police, I was working with social services, housing, mental health support services, all as the voice of the victim. So I was working for the victim and really identified with them what they needed from those services to be safe and for their children to be safe. So I supported those clients, um, also did some training with the police and social services and housing so they could understand what domestic abuse was and so they could offer better support to those victims within that borough of London. From there, I then went on to manage a team of IDVAs within that service. So I had four um, independent domestic violence advocates um, and I would supervise all of their cases and make sure all of their cases were being um, supported in the safest possible way. And I also managed a team of early intervention workers. So they were caseworkers who supported young people. So 11 to 17 year olds who were experiencing gender-based violence. Okay, great. I mean, gosh, you've got so much experience there. I know my listeners will be thinking, gosh, okay, she understands it all. I know from working with lots of clients myself over the years that a lot of people don't realise that they can call those helplines, those domestic abuse helplines. I've heard, well, I don't think my, my case is serious enough, or I wasn't quite sure if it was abuse, or yeah. I don't think that lines for people like me. Um, I think there is a bit of a... a an impression that it's for a certain type of person that yes. you know and and that maybe you you're not that person so it's not for you and and a lot yes. of these victims of abuse are highly empathetic they don't want to waste people's time they don't want to be Absolutely. a burden so we've got that as well so what would your advice be if someone's yes. listening to this right now and they're just not sure whether this is for them 
That is so true, Sarah. So I would I would find when I was on the domestic abuse helpline, as well as well as when I was working for the service, I would often get clients call and say, I don't think I'm experiencing domestic abuse. I'm not sure if I should be speaking to you uh, because he hasn't or she hasn't physically assaulted me. I'm, during this conversation, I'm going to use gendered language. So the majority of victims of domestic abuse are female and the majority of perpetrators are male. So I would have clients call me and say, he hasn't assaulted me. Now, what's been really helpful over the last few years is that the language around domestic abuse has changed. It's now called domestic abuse. It is not domestic violence. So domestic abuse will cover all sorts of different tactics that are used. Violence doesn't have to be one of them. And it can happen to absolutely anybody. So I've supported doctors, lawyers, management consultants, really professional, uh, you know, well-educated people, as well as everybody else, or, you know, the rest of society. So really the very sad thing about domestic abuse is there is no boundary to it. It can happen to anybody. Yes, it's very, very true, sadly. Now, for people listening who aren't quite clear, if, you know, because there's so many types of abuse, now that we call it abuse, domestic abuse, what do you see as the, as the areas that people, if they're thinking, you know, maybe it's it's very controlling with the money or maybe they don't like yeah. me seeing my friends, but is that enough? You know, what does domestic abuse cover? Okay, so the tactics of domestic abuse can be broken down into five or six um, methods. So physical violence, um, coercive and controlling behaviour, psychological and emotional abuse, stalking and harassment and financial abuse. And now also much more technological abuse. So we see uh, stalking, um, facilitating tech abuse by having spyware put on phones or cars having GPS uh, monitoring on them. But really, the important thing to know is that coercive and controlling behaviour, which in the UK became a law in 2015, underpins all those forms of abuse. So coercive and controlling behaviour is basically where someone is made to feel that they need to change their behaviour to prevent an escalation in abuse. So they need to either stop seeing certain friends, they need to you know, share their money, they need to uh, give all their money to the perpetrator and be given a small allowance so that they can exist on this tiny punitive allowance. Or it could be that they need to dress in a certain way or behave in a certain way. Their behavior needs, needs to change in order to prevent an escalation. So if you are in an abusive situation, and you feel that you are not at liberty, you are not free to speak freely because you feel there's there will be um, an escalation either, you know, he will be aggressive with you or verbally abusive or, uh, you know, sulking and punishing you in some way. You, know, you can't speak freely. You can't be yourself. You can't see the friend you want to see. You can't go out when you want to go out. All of those pieces I liken to pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. And you could pull one of those pieces out and you think, well, that's not a problem. Of course, we've got a shared bank account. That's what lots of people do. You know, we share our resources. But if there are lots of other elements of control in there and you put those different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, it will create a picture 
that identifies that actually there's there is a power imbalance in that relationship and that that uh, the perpetrator needs to be in the position of dominance in needs to be in a position of control over the victim and that's when there would be an abusive scenario taking place very good advice and I'm sure a lot of people listening are, are thinking gosh yeah that that resonates on some level with me yeah now a lot of people listening also will be going through a breakup and I know that some people have heard and I've heard clients say you know at least I'm out now because that means the abuse will mm. stop mm. now post-separation abuse is a huge issue as yeah. we both know so maybe you can talk a little bit about what people can expect and maybe some of the dangers of when you're going through a, a separation, maybe a divorce in those early days, especially. Yeah. Yeah. So from a domestic abuse perspective, separation is the most dangerous time. Categorically, the lead up to separation and immediately after is when the perpetrator starts to lose control. And therefore, what will happen is he will attempt to exert control in any other way. So it could be becoming more violent, it could be becoming more controlling with uh, the children and allowing access to the children, it could be more verbal abuse. So I would say be really mindful of the fact that if you are separating, if you are seeking a divorce and there's domestic abuse in that relationship, it needs to be managed really safely. And I would definitely ad advise that you take guidance on how to manage that safely because it won't end. The perpetrator is getting something out of controlling you. And if he's not able to, if you don't live together and therefore he's not able to do it by your side in your home, you've separated, you're living in separate homes, he will use other means. And so that could be the weaponization of children. And by that, I mean either trying to turn the child against you, trying to um, take full custody of the child, um, actually getting the child to five supported clients where the child has been physically abusive to mom because that's what he's been told to do. So children can be weaponized, finances can be weaponized. So I would just be really mindful of thinking, phew, I'm done once you get that decree nisi, because unfortunately you're not. The perpetrator will look to either repeatedly take you back to court, um, repeatedly make accusations, social services, or to friends and family, allegations of abuse. So there will be other methods. So I would always advise that if there is domestic abuse, you seek support and guidance on that so that you know how best to manage that safely really good advice and I'm seeing a lot of clients at the moment whose children have been aggressive towards them have been turned against them um, what's your advice for women struggling with that because it is heartbreaking on top of the divorce on top of the separation on top of the abuse everything they're going through to then find that their children are not seeing the reality of it but being yeah. scared because obviously you don't want to bad mouth your ex that you don't want yeah. to turn them against their the, the, the other parent how what's your advice for, for how to navigate that that process I would say supporting because I've supported hundreds of clients over the years where they have had children who have been deemed a perpetrator of abuse because they have been they've either learned behavior from the perpetrator from the father 
or as you say, they are coerced into committing these crimes against their mum or committing these abuses against their mum. They are the most challenging cases to manage because mum is going to do her absolute best to safeguard her child. She is not going to want to criminalise her child for a start. She's not going to want to report that child to the police. And what I would say is the best way to do it is possibly either, depending on the age of the child, trying to maybe suggest some form of family therapy, excluding the perpetrator. He is not to be part of any form of therapy. Um, and really talking with a therapist where they understand domestic abuse dynamics and they understand how a child could have learned these behaviours or be coerced into it. But it's a really difficult path to navigate because what you don't want to do, as you've just said, is, be, is kind of get down and dirty with dad and start, you know, saying negative things about dad because that doesn't help anyone and that could well fuel the fire. So really it's about trying to speak as openly as possible with the child, but also setting really clear boundaries. No matter what's happening outside of mum and child's relationship, always there need to be boundaries in place. So if your child is being physically violent or verbally abusive, there needs to be a point where you say, okay, enough, I'm not going to accept that. And there needs to be time out, as you would do with a child, even if there wasn't abuse in this scenario. Really good advice. And I agree, it's such a, a difficult path to, to walk. I mean, you mentioned getting a therapist involved. Mm. I mean, I'm nervous of that um, yeah. because I know that that whilst there are some incredible therapists who really know their stuff and are morally you know on the right path and and doing the best that they can there are also so-called experts out there that maybe don't have the same intentions or maybe have a bias in their ideology which is what I would yes. say it is in a lot of cases um so how do people navigate that because I've seen people reaching out in the best interest of their child yeah. to get help and then basically allowing the fox into the chicken coop that may even end up in their child being removed from them or taking sides with the perpetrator yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah, that's a really valuable point. And I think actually this is relevant to the entirety of support, mental health support for victims of domestic abuse. Anyone, any survivor of domestic abuse, be that because you're having to manage some form of um, child abuse, as in your child perpetrating abuse against you, or you are managing it as a survivor of domestic abuse and you're needing uh, counselling or psychotherapeutic support, it has to be carried out by someone who has a clear understanding of domestic abuse dynamics. There can be no misunderstanding that in some way domestic abuse is a two-contango business or that she is in some way complicit. So the, the research and the referral stage is essential. It has to be done where ideally you have a client who is referred um, by someone that you recognize as understanding domestic abuse. So it, it really ideally needs to come from a domestic abuse professional. So I do that with my clients. If they need um, support from a therapist, I will know who I'm referring them to. I don't just refer them to anyone because absolutely they can do more harm than good. If someone's listening to this and thinking I need help 
where do I go? Would they, yeah. what would you suggest? Because for, okay. for people out there who don't know, and there's that, yeah. you know, people can present, and quite often they present as a domestic abuse specialist or, yes. you know, unification specialist, all these words that come up. What, well, you yeah. know, again, how do they navigate okay. that? Because they don't know, it's a dangerous path to walk. Absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm really pleased we're exploring this because it is really dangerous. And there are therapists out there who will most definitely do more harm than good and put the client at risk. What needs to happen is either, depending on what the, the circumstances are with the client, if they're working with a domestic abuse service, I would recommend that they speak to that service, that service provider, the caseworker, and see if they have got anyone that can be referred that they know provides strong healthy safe guidance if not then in the UK there's something called the BACP where therapists are listed and you can look at all of their experience and what and what you need to be looking for is someone who has an understanding of domestic abuse of a trauma-informed therapist ideally but not someone who uses language about relationships and someone who would say something, because I've, I've been doing this recently actually for a client. What you don't want to see is someone saying, looking at a relationship breakdown or looking at um, how a relationship hasn't worked, because that would suggest there is a, a dynamic here where the two people are equal. That is not what's happening in a domestic abuse scenario. So you need to really have a therapist who understands that, the power imbalance. Really, really good advice. And I think, you know, again, just trusting that your lawyer will know that or any legal professional will necessarily know that. I, I would say, you know, this is where, you know, as the victim of abuse, you have to step up and do your own research and, and not yes. just be led because this isn't necessarily widely known, is it, Caroline? Absolutely. And I would be really kind of mindful of seeking advice from anyone who, just from anyone, from any professional, just because they, you know, for example, a lawyer, just because a lawyer can provide you sound advice with regard to civil or criminal matters, it doesn't mean they understand domestic abuse. And that's, you know, that's a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment where I'm working with uh, clients where they have a solicitor, but they're needing the kind of the, the more in-depth knowledge about domestic abuse dynamics. So yeah, I would be saying, either referral from someone who you know has been through this before and they've had a good outcome or a referral from a domestic abuse professional. So for people listening who are about to go through the divorce process, um, obviously divorcing an abusive partner is not going to be the same as divorcing someone who maybe you've got a bit of conflict with over, you yeah. know, who's getting what in the in the settlement but they don't want to annihilate you in a healthy, healthy relationship. In a toxic relationship, they don't care how much suffering they cause. The more, yeah. the better. An yeah. ultimate annihilation is what the outcome is. So there's no fair resolution on the table here. So it's going to be a very different process. So what are the challenges that you see for victims of abuse as they separate and go into that divorce process? Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup 
take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. What are the challenges that you see for victims of abuse as they separate and go into that divorce process? I would say one of the biggest challenges is having boundaries and sticking to them. Unfortunately, what we often try and do when we're doing anything where there's conflict is reach for compromise, is reach for behaving in a reasonable way. Because, you know, as as a non-abuser, that's what you would be looking to do. That's how you manage life generally. Where there is domestic abuse, where there is a highly toxic relationship, and as you say, the perpetrator is looking to annihilate that victim and really destroy them, because that's what it will come down to. Because domestic abuse, from my experience, is a a win-lose game in the eye of the perpetrator. He wants to win, and he wants to see you lose. And so, therefore, when you go into a divorce, unfortunately... I will often advise my clients, you need to develop a really steely, cynical exterior, which can be really challenging because you've got history with that person. There may have been domestic abuse, but it could be you've got children together. There's love there. You don't want to go in and annihilate that person. You want to go in and just cut your losses and get out as cleanly as you can. Unfortunately, that's not where he's coming from. So what has to happen in a divorce scenario where there's domestic abuse is that the client needs to have boundaries in place and they know they have to stick to them. So if there is um, a court order and the perpetrator maybe tries to manipulate that order or tries to push for more, for example, with a financial settlement and change things and maybe reach out to the client separately outside of legal advice, that needs to be a warning bell. You have boundaries in place. My solicitor has said, this is what we're going to accept and I am not moving from it. And this would also be the same with um, any child arrangement orders. So if they're going through a divorce and, and there are children, you have those boundaries, you have that agreement in place and you do not deviate. You do not think to yourself, if I show goodwill, he will. If I show compromise, he will. Unfortunately, in a domestic abuse scenario, as we both know, that is a that is not going to happen. You know, boundaries are essential. Um, and, and it can be tough, though, right? If you've come out of an abusive relationship, you may not have many boundaries, if any, yes. in some cases. So suddenly feeling strong enough to stick to those, because as you and I both know, Caroline, it can just be a look or it could oh, be yeah. the tone or, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be anything major. And maybe it's nothing that anyone else like your lawyer or even a yeah. judge in court would pick up on. But it can be extremely intimidating and still controlling, even though you're not involved in in the relationship in the same way anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is also a real challenge, because if there has been domestic abuse, undoubtedly, in my experience, that victim or the survivor 
her self-esteem will have been brutalized. So she is already going to go in in a, in a weakened state very often and will question her own sense of herself and her decision making because she's often had to do that. She's been forced to do that by the perpetrator. It may well be that he's told her that she's not capable of making decisions about the finances. She's not capable of making decisions about the children or the home. He needs to do that because she's she's not as clever as him or whatever it is. So yeah, or as you say, there may be a fear aspect there that he will just look at her and then and she knows that's a warning sign. That look means there's gonna be an escalation. And so what I would advise for anyone going through a divorce and subsequent to that, if there is domestic abuse, you develop as strong and as safe a network around you as possible. So I would advise that you reach out to friends if they are safe friends. You may well have lost some over the years through isolation from domestic abuse, but you try and reach out to them, you reach out to family, and you try and develop, I'm kind of picturing a bit like a rubber ring, a rubber ring around you so that you can bump into things and it's not going to hurt you because you've got that support around you and I think that will help but undoubtedly it is a grueling process it's a marathon and you need to eat well you need to sleep well you need to take care of your mental health there is a high degree of depression anxiety and PTSD in victims of domestic abuse and so their mental health will have taken a bashing um, during this relationship so to be aware of that and maybe reach out for support that can help strengthen you in as many ways as possible I think is going to give you as good an outcome as you would hope to achieve it's tough to do uh, but actually you know if you can then obviously that you know or just make small steps towards it you know if you're not sleeping yeah. very well but you make sure you're getting at least five hours you know whereas before maybe you were more restless you know relaxing having a bath before you go to yes. bed you know making sure you've got some some comforting things around you so it's small steps isn't it because you do yeah. start to regain your strength yes. but going back to the actual divorce process which you know I mean a lot of people say to me well if I can get to court then I'll get you know the judge will be able to see and I'll get justice you know and that's what I'm looking for and I can see on the, if anyone's watching on YouTube right now, Caroline rolled her eyes at the justice word. So I'm with you there. I mean, you could swap court for casino in a, in a lot of cases just because there's so many moving parts and people with different opinions and views and education levels and understanding of what even domestic abuse is. So, you know, what is your advice, maybe when you're even looking for a lawyer? You know, a lot of lawyers will say, oh, yes, we understand domestic abuse. But how do you know that they really get it? And, and how do yeah. you pick the best person for you? That is really such a big question. And it's really challenging because, you know, I've spoken to many clients uh, where they haven't had the legal support and guidance they've needed. They've been told not to use the A word being abuse. They can't use the A word in their, their court case. This is their solicitor telling them that. Again, I think recommendation is really good. I think talking to the solicitor and trying to assess whether they understand when you're discussing your experience of domestic abuse, that you are a survivor of abuse, that just because, for example, you're not arriving in their office with a black eye and a limb hanging off, that you are still 
you know, a survivor of abuse and, and trying to work out through explaining your experiences to them, whether you can see a light bulb going off in their eyes. Are they understanding that when you're talking about isolation, about belittlement, about verbal abuse, about controlling the decisions in the home, that they're recognising that that is a tactic of control and that they're not diminishing that because that will further harm you. So I've supported clients recently where they've been re-traumatised by their solicitor, telling them that actually they just need, I think the language used was just get over it. And the abuse had been horrendous. So, you know, I think it's, and also actually, I think not being scared to change your solicitor. I think if you feel that that solicitor does not have your back, they do not understand where you have been living, what you've been living through. You need to cut your losses um, and find someone who can potentially guide you in a, in a better way because you need to get a good outcome. You need someone who's going to really fight your corner. I mean, I totally agree with that. And it is very difficult at the same time to change the list. If you're in the, in the middle of a very complicated case, yes. if you can't afford to pay their bill off, they may not, well, they won't release your files. If they, if you can afford to pay them, then the next lawyer has to charge you reading in time to read all your files again. So there's double costs there. Yes. I mean, it, it's not straightforward, but I totally agree. You know, yeah. if you're with uh, someone that doesn't get it, then you're better off getting out. But costs can be prohibitive. Absolutely. I certainly wouldn't advocate that unless it's absolutely necessary. But I do think it's important to look out for the warning signs to begin with. And I think if you try and do it early on, have these conversations with the solicitor early on to find out if they are empathetic and compassionate and maybe also angry on your behalf. If they're showing some anger that actually kind of righteous indignation about what's happened to you, I think that's a good sign that they are going to be a really good um, ally in this case. Yeah, and I think I'd also add to that that you know that they appreciate this is different tactics, and if they can yeah. maybe say things like that, I would be hoping that they would say, "Look, you know, don't worry. The emails will come through me. What I'll do is, if there's something aggressive in it, I will manage that information. I will make sure yeah. I don't just send you emails." We won't get involved in replying to everything because some things will be distractions. So we'll keep your costs down as much as we can. I mean, they're the sort of things that I would want yeah. to hear from my lawyer so that I, I knew then that they get it. Because divorcing somebody like this and a, and a perpetrator, an abusive person, can be extremely expensive because of the distraction, the gaslighting, all the tactics that they use yeah. in the relationship they bring to the divorce process. So lying, not doing things when they said they would saying things with certainty that you know are absolute lies, delaying things, confusing things, all those tactics yes. will be transferred to the process. If you don't have a lawyer that is aware of those tactics, you're in for one hell of not only an emotional roller coaster, but also a financially devastating breakup yeah. as well. Yeah. So we yeah. need to make sure that, that the lawyer understands those things. So I would definitely add that to the list as well. So yeah. sure. I think that's really valuable and what I would say also is to recognize that um, the continual sending of letters or the withholding of documents and delaying the process or continually calling them back to court is recognized as a form of financial abuse so a perpetrator could be doing that deliberately to rack up your bills 
because he knows that that's going to be damaging to you. So, yeah, but absolutely, I think your points are really good ones. Well, okay, so they're going through the divorce process. They've got a good team together. Emotionally, though, it's tough, right? Emotionally, yeah. you know, I think people put a lot of focus on the cost of going to court, the cost of a divorce mm. financially. And yes, it can be, as we've just said, very expensive because of the tactics that they will use. But also there's the emotional stress, isn't there, as well, of yeah. maybe walking into the courtroom and not being believed or having to be a little bit disingenuous, like you said, not using the abuse word in court. But then again, later on, that can be held against you. However, yes. there is a good point there that if you do use the abuse word, it can trigger a whole series of repercussions because of the way that domestic uh, abuse victims are viewed at the moment in the family court. So yeah. how do you decide how to walk that line? Um, golly, you're asking me tough questions. Um, how do you decide to do it? I think really you have to have your eye on the prize. You have to have your eye on the end game. Really visualise what your life is going to look like once you have endured this and survived this because it is another process unfortunately to survive it is another forum unfortunately in domestic abuse where the perpetrator can abuse you so it's really knowing what happened knowing your reality staying really strong to that reality pushing back and maybe choosing your battles as you say with the letters choosing your battles with which ones it's, it's going to be worth your while fighting um, and conserving your energy when you can. But having a really, I think it can be helpful, having a really good picture in your mind about what your life is going to look like once you have got through this. Uh, you know, picture your house, picture your holiday, picture your time with your kids in your home and your calm time around the dinner table or Christmas time. And hold on to that and really value that because I think it can, that can help. Absolutely. I think, you know, looking after yourself throughout the process, as you've said, is, is important. And like you say, knowing that this will come to an end, you yeah. will get through this. And, you know, working with a coach like you or me or one of my team to, to actually put a program in place for how does life look like after I'm out? How do yeah. I heal? How do, how do I get my self-confidence back up? Because we have a choice, right? This this doesn't have to define you, even though you may have the emotional scars of going through an abusive yeah. relationship. It does not have to define you going forward. And yeah, it's what you absolutely. do about it. Yeah, yeah, it's what you do about it that defines you and, and your life to come. So any top tips for moving forward after an abusive relationship? Um, I think don't be fearful. Don't be fearful of new relationships not everyone out there is an abuser but what I would say is because often I, I will support clients where they will just feel that they can no longer trust their instincts because they didn't see what was going to happen you don't see what's going to happen with a perpetrator they do not show their colors at the beginning of a relationship otherwise you would run for the hills so I would say Try and get back to the person that you were. Try and remember and feel who you were and visualise the fact that actually you can get back to that. Did you enjoy going to the cinema? Did you get enjoy going out for drinks with your friends? And recognise that there is absolutely light at the end of the tunnel 
And you will be able to have a, a relationship where you are valued, you are nurtured, you are loved, and you get everything you need to be fed. Whereas uh, not staying in that place where you feel this is all I'm going to have. This is going to be the sum total of my life because it isn't. This is a one part of your life. You close that book and you put it on the bookshelf. Totally agree. Adversity and going through these tough times will make you stronger if you're learning from the lessons. Learn to spot the signs. Yeah. Put some safety nets for dating. You know, if there are any warning signs, don't give it another go. Don't stick with it. It might change. Just get out. I say deploy yeah. your parachute and exit the building immediately. Yes. Don't, yes. you know, just protect yourself. So absolutely. Could I just, sorry, just add with that, with regard to the warning signs, what I've found really helpful with clients where they haven't haven't got necessarily the clarity about some of the tactics that have been normalised or, or minimised by the perpetrator, there's something called the power and control wheel, which is a diagnostic tool we use in domestic abuse. And it's a bicycle wheel broken up into different spokes. And within each spoke, it describes a different type of abuse. I think if someone were wanting to move forward in their life and they were feeling hesitant or they felt that perhaps there were maybe some warning signs or some indicators, little red flags going off in their mind about behaviour of someone that they were with, maybe have a look at the power and control wheel and just see if there are any of those behaviours that are present because that may well give you some confidence to either say, yep, I think I'm going to exit this one or no, I'm going to you know, I'm going to carry on and see how things pan out. So I think it, that can just be helpful as well with, with trying to alleviate any anxiety about future relationships. Absolutely. Really good advice. And, you know, obviously in the UK, we're great. We have a lot of domestic abuse charity support here um, around the world, again, depending on where you are. But they, there is support out there. So do look for it. Do ask for it if you feel you need it. And obviously, if yeah. you're in immediate danger then do call the police because that's what they're there for um well thank you caroline you've given us so many fascinating and useful insights i just have one last question that i ask all my guests on my podcast so the podcast is called heartbreak to happiness and i think it's really important to know what happiness is for you so you can tap into it along the way and i know that your job you're dealing with a lot of people who are in tough situations Mm. so what is happiness for you caroline Happiness for me is spending time with my children. Um, that's my happy place. And I, I visualise that when I'm having, you know, if I'm, I'm having a challenging case or any, you know, difficulty that I'm having, I visualise being with my children. And that is, that's really, I find that very strengthening. That's my happy place. One more thing, where can people find you? If they want to follow you, if they want to contact you, they want to come and be coached by you, where can they find you? Okay, so really the best place to find me at the moment is is on LinkedIn. I'm I'm afraid I don't have a website. So you can just Google my name on LinkedIn, Caroline Glass, um, and you'll see my profile there and my contact details. Or I've got an email address, which is domesticabuseadvisor at gmail.com. Um, and so I can, you know, I could be contacted by email as well. Well, I suggest everyone heads over to LinkedIn to find you. Lovely. That's really lovely. Well, thank you so much. You've been a fabulous guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to Caroline Glass on LinkedIn to find out more about Caroline and her work. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. Bye.
that's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Thank you.